Hello, and welcome to the Engineers Collective, the podcast by New Civil Engineer. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share this podcast with your colleagues. It's free to download on all podcast sites, or you can listen at newcivilengineer.com forward slash podcast. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are Advancing Infrastructure. Welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor of New Civil Engineer and I'm joined today by our news editor, Rob Horgan. Hi Claire, how are you doing? I'm not too bad, and you? Yeah, getting by, getting by. Good. In a moment, we're going to be talking through some of the recent news stories we've been reporting on. And later, we're going to be joined by London Underground Managing Director, Andy Lord, who'll be talking through the impact of COVID-19 on operation and funding of the network, and also what it means in the long term. First, though, I think one of the biggest stories we've been covering recently is the train derailment in Scotland on the 12th of August, in which three out of the nine people on board sadly lost their lives. Yeah, it was obviously a, a tragic event for the rail industry. Um which we're all still coming to terms with, really. It's not not that long ago, and um, it's very uncommon in the UK. Uh, so, yeah, the Rail Accident Investigation Branch has now confirmed that uh, a landslide triggered the derailment, uh, which which uh, led to uh, the train falling down an embankment and then setting on fire. Um, obviously, there'll be investigations into it, but it seems the the horrendous weather we had um, for the the day or two preceding the the, the derailment was was to 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 blame for it. Yeah, Network Rail Chief Executive Andy Haynes flew home from holiday to visit the scene. I think it was the day after, and he's already vowed to take action. And Transport Secretary Grant Shapps has demanded that they produce an interim report by the first of September. I think. Yeah, exactly. Everyone's taking it very seriously, and and the the response can't be questioned. It's what you'd expect, um, and, and more really. But um, question, I guess, is should more have been done before um, this point? And the ORR report a month before. Stonehaven highlighted that there was six times more flooding on Britain's rail network in 2019 to 2020 than the previous year and a spike in landslides, which it said demonstrated a vulnerability. The ORR has also warned that Network Rail's plans to deal with extreme weather events and the climate emergency are not keeping up with the frequency and severity of these events. So it's all all good and well to have these reactive... um, actions and reports and commitments but but should more have really been done beforehand and should we have should we have almost seen something like this coming i think it's a challenge i think it's something we're going to contend with more often um as we see more extreme weather events network rail's got a real issue legacy issue with victorian assets that are still in use and they're still dealing with some of the deterioration from the end of the british rail and rail track days but I think it's really compounded by climate change. I mean, extreme weather events are becoming more common and more severe. But it's a problem for infrastructure everywhere. It's not just for rail assets, is it? No, exactly. And it, it seems Scotland is is bearing a bit of a brunt of it at the moment. I know you've you've covered several um, similar but not as severe incidents in Scotland over the last week. Um, the, the Union Canal and the, the A68, for example. 
Yeah, the Rest and Be Thankful has, you know, had an ongoing issue with landslides. I mean, they've got a diversion route that they can use, but even that was blocked by landslides. And they're, they're even doing overnight closures at the moment where when they're predicting heavy rain. The Union Canal was a real problem, though, because they had a 30-metre section of embankment that collapsed, and the flooding from that, because it's a contour canal rather than one with locks, it flowed onto the Edinburgh to Glasgow rail line, um, it's only really in the last week or so that the damage to that rail line has become clear and it's going to be two months before they finish repairing that. And um, we've just heard news about the A68. That's quite a complex repair as well, so that half the carriageway has just collapsed there. But that's going to take them until early September to to repair it there as well. So it's causing real problems across the network and there must be lots of other smaller landslides and damage to the road infrastructure that we're not we are not hearing about. But dealing with these issues after the fact is costly. And sadly, at Stonehaven, it's in terms of lives as well as civil engineering infrastructure. And it's time consuming, too. I mean, you've only got to look at the replacement bridge for Pooley Bridge in Cumbria that we've been reporting on recently. That should open this autumn, but that's nearly five years after Storm Desmond caused widespread damage in the county. And it wasn't the first incident of its kind that we've reported on quite a few over the years. I mean, one of the features, last features I wrote for Grand Engineering before I moved over to New Seven Engineer was looking at just one of 50 landslides that Network Rail was dealing with over the early part of this year, just in the southeast alone. The scale of the challenge in predicting when and where these failures will occur and the extreme weather event that will trigger the, that kind of failure is huge. I don't know really quite how we get on top of that. Yeah, the the challenges of prediction are, are obviously that the biggest uh, challenges to overcome i mean in terms of how much it costs it's not it's not massively expensive but it's deciding where you put your monitoring in and what you monitor and and how regularly regularly you, you monitor monitor it um which is the, which is the big challenge it's having the skills and people to actually look at the data and interpret it quickly in time to actually have some action before there's a failure I mean, I think these kind of challenges highlight why HS2 is needed. It's not about faster journey times, it's about more reliable journey times that are delivered by moving passenger transport onto rail infrastructure that's engineered to modern standards. I mean, HS2 will free up the existing network for improvements, but for freight too. But it's not just in rural areas that have struggled with extreme weather, is it? No, in in London there's been a high-profile... near collapse if we can use the word collapse of the Hammersmith uh, bridge which was uh, shut urgently after the heat wave um, which feels like a million years ago now that we've experienced the rain subsequently but um, it's it's obviously been closed to traffic since uh, the middle of last year and now to road traffic that is and now it's also been closed to cyclists and pedestrians um, and and from speaking to people close to the project, there there was a real fear that the bridge might actually collapse. Um, I've been told that there were, uh, plans were being drawn up for what what would be done in in the case of of one half of the bridge collapsing. Um, and it all stems from cracks in the structure which widened um, due to the heat wave. Um, so it really brings to a fore the the challenges our infrastructure in this country are facing with the with the changes in temperature and the more extreme weathers we're getting, be it rain or or sun. But I mean, that fortunately, because they had monitoring in place, they managed to catch that before it became a failure and close it so there was no risk to the public because they stopped river transport as well to going underneath. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the problem with Hammersmith Bridge 
over for more than a year for the last few years has been about funding and or lack of funding and arguments over funding and who's going to pay for what uh obviously tfl has massive funding pressure at the moment and we'll hear more about that in later on in in this episode um but london mayor sadiq khan recently prioritized uh, hammersmith bridge in his list of shovel ready projects that he submitted to to the government um however however they they basically shunned that suggestion and and offered up no money um so that so the problems are going to continue there um and and i don't see what's going to give in terms of who's going to fund it at the end of the day nobody seems willing to or able to to fund it that that shovel ready projects um that community secretary robert jenrick asked for seems like the opportune moment to to get the funds in place but we're talking about 120 million pounds or i think it's a, about 100 million gap because tfl have already pledged 20 25 million i think um so where where 100 million pound is going to come from i don't know tfl doesn't look like it's going to have that sort of money available the council certainly don't have that sort of money available so unless it comes from central government i don't see how these repairs are going to be carried out and if there is a, a serious um, chance of the bridge collapsing, there's there's no way it's going to open again in the interim. But there were 300 projects that did make it onto Robert Jenrick's list of shovel-ready projects, weren't there, who've shared 1.3 billion funding as part of the COVID-19 recovery. Which schemes did actually make the cut? Yeah, so there's 300 schemes all across the UK. It's been quite evenly spread out. Um quite a lot of money gone towards what what I guess we would term innovative schemes so there's the the solar rail projects the the riding sunbeams project which um, we've reported on several times before which is about creating a, a more sustainable um, rail network um, there's also a lot of funding for very light rail schemes so the Coventry very light rail scheme which is seen as a bit of a flagship scheme for for the technology that's been given money uh and there's been money f- to create a, a a very light rail center of excellence if you like um for a better loss of a better term um and and i think that really shows a commitment to both innovation driving costs down but also creating more sustainable modes of transport and connecting up the network better so also seems to be a focus on the regions with this funding as well you know because hammersmith missed out was there another well, there was another london project you were talking about that missed out too yeah exactly Al- almost as interesting as the projects on the the list are the ones that are missing obviously we spoke about hammersmith but also in london the the cremorne bridge was it cremorne bridge i never know how to say it formerly the diamond jubilee bridge proposal connecting uh wandsworth and battersea um as has again been uh snubbed if you will that's that's a project that's sort of been kicking around for almost a decade now and the the piles were actually put in place in 2013 and it's just it's secured two thirds of the funding it needs as well and it's just waiting for for that extra bit of funding to to get it get it up that's a, a foot and cycling bridge and um interestingly on this one London Mayor Sadiq Khan doesn't seem as interested in it we know he loves a a, a 
Thames crossing proposal from how much he he pumped into the Rotherhithe crossing before canning it and how how much he um he kept plugging away with that despite the costs soar, soaring however doesn't seem so keen on this one actually ignored it in his list of shovel ready projects which prompted Wandsworth council to put it on their own list um and subsequently was rejected by by government anyway but um that's another one that you would think as a shovel ready project that one doesn't actually need anywhere near as much funding as Hammersmith Bridge it only needs a sort of 10 15 million extra you would have you would have thought that would have been a prime time to to get that to get that ready and to get that built and i think it does raise a question of how government local government and devolved powers such as tfl work together in in the future um sort of post covid and how how we get things like this built this is a, a pretty straightforward bridge at the end of the day which um has sort of had two thirds of funding in place for a number of years now and and just hasn't been built it's sort of similar story to the hammersmith bridge really in that it's sort of arguments over who's going to pay for it between the three the central government local government and in well in this case tfl but in devolved powers i think there needs to be i don't know what it is but some sort of clearer uh, approach to to projects like this in the future maybe they're just waiting a couple of years and they're going to rename it the platinum bridge rather than darman jubilee bridge we're nearly there yeah 70th anniversary 2022 it, what's going to get built first that or that or crossrail who knows? But I mean, the thing that strikes me is that list, along with the IPA's £37 billion procurement pipeline that they announced a couple of months ago, that doesn't seem to have stemmed the job losses in the civil engineering sector, though, has it? No, not at all. If anything, we've heard of more job losses since um, since those announcements. And with furlough coming to an end imminently, we can... can quite bleakly expect a few more job losses I would expect in the industry over the coming weeks and months um, we've we've been keeping a tally and it's getting close to 8,000 now with WYG, ACOM and Lang O'Rourke the latest to announce restructuring plans you've also had job losses at Arab, Mace pretty much across the broad all the big contractors consultants um, through to the smaller firms as well so um, it is a it is a, a tough time for everyone, of course. Yeah, it does look quite bleak, doesn't it? And considering we already had a skills crisis looming, you do have to worry that the industry is going to cripple itself in the long term by losing that many skilled engineers across the board. I think that the impact of the pandemic is going to be felt for a very long time in terms of skills. But the other area that we're already seeing a huge impact on is project certainty and funding for um, plan schemes. And I think that's quite a good point to bring in our special guest into the conversation. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. TFL's funding issues have been well documented and of course they're largely the result of the COVID-19 pandemic. But what is the real impact of this crisis on the ground? Our guest today is Managing Director of the London Underground, Andy Lord, who will be exploring the challenges of the last few months with us, as well as looking at what it means for the future. Andy's been at the sharp end of things and is ultimately responsible for ensuring TFL's flagship service continues to operate safely and efficiently. By way of an introduction, Andy has been MD of the London Underground since November last year. And before joining London Underground, he spent nearly 30 years in the commercial aviation sector, joining British Airways as a sponsored undergraduate in 1989, where he gained an honours degree in mechanical engineering. 
He took on diverse roles through across engineering and operations, progressing through a variety of senior roles, culminating as Director of Operations for just over seven years. Before joining London Underground, his most recent position was as Vice President of Menzies Aviation, with overall responsibility for all aspects of the business and operations for the UK, Europe, Middle East, Africa and India. So Andy, welcome to the Engineers Collective. Thank you very much. So thank you for joining us today. I can only imagine it's been a hectic first nine months on the job. I only joined NCE at the beginning of this year and it's been quite manic for me too. So can you talk us through what the lockdown period meant from your perspective and how difficult it was to manage a network with such a drastic reduction in passenger numbers? Well, I think it's uh, it's certainly been a baptism of fire, that's uh, that's for sure. I'd, I'd been enrolled three months uh, just over when... Uh, lockdown started uh, we obviously started to see some ridership um, fall off just before lockdown actually as concerns around the pandemic started to grow um, but our first priority was obviously around the welfare and, and well-being of our staff and colleagues across London Underground and Transport for London more widely uh, and I have to say that they, they really have been heroes throughout this uh, crisis um, they couldn't have done more to keep the operation running keep the service running reliably for uh, particularly during lockdown, the NHS key workers and other essential workers who needed to use the service. Uh, at the same time, we've had to transform how we run the, the whole organisation. Um, we're doing this interview uh, from our respective homes or remote offices, uh, and we've had to run the whole railway uh, remotely. Uh, we've had to split up our control centres uh, to reduce the risk if, if somebody was to uh, catch the virus. Uh, and uh, we've learned new ways of doing things. We've become much more agile uh, and we've done uh, an amazing job to keep the railway running and deliver that service to keep London moving during what has been unprecedented times. That's really great to hear how you've managed to evolve what you're doing. What sort of service are you running now and what are the main challenges for you as we come out of lockdown and people start returning to the office? So we're pretty well back at normal levels of service now, particularly Monday to Friday. We're, we're running well over 95% of our normal scheduled service, which uh, actually if you do a comparison to this time last year is uh, at the same level as, as last summer. Uh, our weekends are slightly lower, but obviously demand is lower at the weekends and our priority has been to, to get our service up Monday to Friday. So we're, we're back at normal levels now. Uh, obviously the biggest challenge we have is around social distancing. Uh, we have to do whatever we can um, to uh, enable people to comply with the, the social distancing requirements, which uh, obviously on the tube is two metres or one metre plus uh, where possible. Uh, and that simply is impossible uh, in certain locations because of the infrastructure we have. You know, A number of our stations were obviously built well over 150 years ago and they weren't designed a, for the numbers of people that we uh, routinely carry or for these sorts of circumstances. Uh, we've had to reassure people that the tube is safe and clean. We've invested millions of pounds in terms of new cleaning technology. We now uh, apply uh, hospital-grade disinfectant and antiviral cleaning fluids uh, across our network. Uh, and we were the first uh, public transport organisation in the UK to do that, uh, possibly even in, in Europe. Uh, and we did that before the lockdown started to reassure people, both our own colleagues and our customers, that the tube is clean and safe. Uh, and our focus now is how do we try and encourage as many people as possible to come back into central London. Uh, obviously, we're working closely with uh, businesses, uh, the retail sector around uh, how people are going to come back to work and when they're going to come back to work. 
trying to avoid the peak times, um, so the 5.45 to 8.15 in the morning and uh, 4 to 5.30 in the afternoon, which are the busiest periods on the tube, so that people can uh, have the space to travel uh, and have confidence that it's safe to do so. So long, longer term, are you expecting to see passenger numbers return to where they were before COVID or are you sort of putting plans in place for fewer passengers or, or like you said, there not being such a, a peak time, more of a spread out sort of demand um, due to more people working from home and a greater uptake in cycling and other, other travel modes like that? Well, so our, our big focus at TfL is obviously to, to make sure we have a green recovery. Uh, we definitely don't want a car-led recovery for, for all the environmental reasons. And actually, on top of that, the fact that the, the road network just wouldn't be able to, to cope with it. So our big focus is you know, for those people who can to uh, have an active recovery, walking and cycling wherever possible. And we've invested a significant amount of money uh, improving the street space, additional cycle lanes and additional pavement space. Um, and on the tube, it's around uh, how we ensure we can deliver as full a service as possible to encourage people to know that they can travel safely. I don't think we will see uh, the levels of passengers ridership that we had pre-COVID for quite considerable, quite a considerable time. Uh, and that's largely based on uh, information we've got from numerous companies that you know people have now got used to remote working. I think the days of the five-day uh, Monday to Friday office commute or even a four-day office commute are probably not going to return for quite a considerable time, if at all. Uh, and the people are going to vary their journey. So my expectation is that we, we won't go back to the traditional peak that we used to see, which is a big spike between sort of 7am and 8.30 in the morning. Uh, and we'll see more of a, a plateau, if you like, that will last uh, for a longer period in the day, um, but it will be to a lower level. So um, for us, it's around how we ensure that people have confidence to use the tube. Uh, it is safe to do so. Uh, and we want people to, to come back to central London. And, and part of that is around how we work with the wider government and London businesses uh, and attractions as they're able to open up to encourage people to come back into the city. So moving away from looking at the operational railway and looking more at the major projects that are ongoing, what impact has coronavirus and the funding issues had on the likes of, say, Bank Station Upgrade and Northern Line Extension? How did you manage with shutting down those sites at the start of lockdown? So it was a very significant impact for us. We we obviously needed to um, comply with uh, Public Health England advice around social distancing, as you can imagine, uh, particularly bank station it's it's very confined workspace in in areas there so enabling people to work safely uh, under the new guidelines would require a significant amount of work and effort to uh, redesign that so we implemented a safe stop across all work sites uh, across TfL uh, that was done uh, in March and the safe stop lasted about 12 weeks and we slowly started to bring people back after we'd done fully risk assessed analysis of how they could work closely together with appropriate mitigations and precautions put in place. And we now have, you know, for example, both Bank and Northern Line Extension are now both back in, uh, in full work uh, with new work practices in place um, that enable us to deliver similar levels of productivity, but in some areas it's, it's obviously been impacted. Um, but we have about 600 people back at uh, Northern Line Extension compared to 800 before uh, the, the lockdown uh, and about 420 or so uh, at Bank Station. So, you know, those projects are back in. Um, 
the fund the, the impact of uh, covid has had a huge impact on our finances uh, and you'll have seen that we reached a, a, a partial funding agreement with the government that takes us up till october that's what enabled us to restart some of those programs but we've had to review significantly the wider uh, capital programs across tfl uh, and some of those uh, will have to be delayed and deferred as a result of the funding situation we've got but we're having uh, in-depth talks with government around how we ensure we continue to invest in notably the railway for LU um, because we have a lot of assets that we have to replace uh, and following the, the lead that Network Rail have been taken to make sure that we continue to replace and invest in the railway um, and actually take advantage of the fact that we do have lower passion, passenger numbers at the moment so that we're, we're able to perhaps do some more significant works at a time that would be far less disruptive to our customers but deliver significant benefit uh, in the longer term. So I was just wondering uh, what issues you had to contend with when it came to reopening those sites after the 12-week um, safe stop. Obviously, that's probably not something you've had to contend with before. No, I mean, it's, I mean, it's been the whole, uh, I guess the whole economy has had to deal with, with the construction industry in particular, uh, and us in the rail industry from a maintenance perspective, we've, we've had to introduce everything from one-way systems on site. We've had to... Uh, remove facilities so we can create more space for people to get changed on site in a socially distanced way. Uh, we've had to change you know, catering and break areas, uh, obviously installed uh, hand sanitizer points uh, throughout. Uh, and then on top of that, we've had to risk assess every task that has to be undertaken to make sure that um, people can do it in a socially distanced way or where they can't. So, for example, if they have to work within two metres of each other, they do that for less than 15 minutes at a time. They have PPE, uh, all equivalent uh, suitable PPE available for them. Uh, and it's been properly uh, watched and assessed to make sure that there are no issues. And equally, yeah, and this is really, really important, we make sure that nobody does anything that they're uncomfortable doing. You know, safety is our absolute first priority uh, and we have to make sure that uh, everybody's comfortable what we're doing. Uh, and then the, you know, even on the smaller projects like our step-free access programme, which we're, you know, restarted, installing lifts, um, you know, it's it's a very confined space uh, and you need at least two people to, to work in there to install lifts, for example. So all of that, working with our supply chain partners, has required significant re-engineering in effect. Have you got a view on whether any of the major projects are, are behind programme yet and what, what do you be doing to get them back on track? So we're still uh, assessing the full impact. Um, so uh, Northern Line Extension, we, we, uh, we're very hopeful that we'll have dynamic and operational readiness testing starting just before Christmas and that'll be a major milestone. Bank Station is uh, quite more uh, complex uh, we had a major milestone uh, just a week or so ago where we completed the final tunnel boring down to the uh, Docklands Light Railway cross uh, channel uh, tunnel, which is a major milestone. Um, that there's bound to be uh, some impact to COVID on that, and we're assessing that uh, at the moment. But it's too early to say what the the, the full impact will be. Uh just touching on bank station upgrade again for a second um, is, of course, largely about creating extra capacity at the station. Um, do you think that is the kind of project which we will see more of in the future, considering there's a potential drop in passenger numbers and, uh, like you said, a plateau instead of a, a peak time? Well, I think um, the bank station upgrade is you know, even more critical now than it was before. But as you say, for a slightly different reason, uh, I, I 
strongly believe that that in the fullness of time we will see passenger numbers come back up to the levels that we saw before it you know it's not going to be in the next six months or possibly even the next 12 but it's it will happen uh, and I think it's even more important now that we you know we have to deal with the short-term tactical financial challenges without a shadow of a doubt but we can't do that by taking short-term decisions that will impact the longer-term capacity and availability of the transport network and you know best example of that, that I can think of is Madrid uh, after the 2008 uh, economic crash stopped all capital expenditure on major projects and four or five years later they were regretting it hugely because they couldn't cope with the passenger numbers as a result so in the short term getting bank open is a real priority for us because it is a hugely congested station for us in normal times but even in a uh, socially distanced world uh, with lower passenger numbers to have that extra space is really vital for us. And of course, the other critical thing for us is it gives us far better connection, interconnecting ability within the station as well between the various lines there. So it's really vital for us. So I think there will be more uh, capital uh, investment like that, but obviously the business case has got to make sense. Hmm. So one project that has suffered as a result of coronavirus is of course Crossrail which has again had its opening date pushed back. From your perspective as managing the London Underground, how difficult is it to plan the running of the overall network when the opening date for the Elizabeth line keeps getting pushed back? Well, so obviously we're hugely disappointed to uh, have the announcement uh, regarding the uh, delay next summer. Um, We're working extremely closely with Crossrail uh, and wait for them to give us uh, an opening window um, in the next few weeks. We continue to work very closely with them around readiness for that. Uh, My team are working very hard on making sure that we have everything uh, ready for operational readiness and testing of the railway uh, once the assets are handed over to us. Uh, And clearly, you know, this is going to be the most fantastic railway for London and the UK when it opens. Uh, I think we'll have some clarity over that in a short period of time. Uh, In the meantime, it means we've got to ensure we focus on delivering a reliable and safe service on the tube, particularly the Jubilee lines and the and the Central line, which are the two lines that you know run uh, closest to the Elizabeth line and will get relief as a result of it opening. So that's our key focus. Um, we had a major milestone uh, from a Crossrail perspective uh, for the TfL rail element, which I'm responsible for, which was the op- first operation of the new Elizabeth line trains into Heathrow Airport uh, just three weeks ago. Uh, and that was a major milestone, and that will give us real confidence around the reliability and the uh, and the service levels that we'll get once the central tunnel section is open. So in terms of the actual project, do you think the Elizabeth Line will become a blueprint for how underground lines are built in the future, not just in London but elsewhere too? So I was fortunate enough last Friday to visit both Farringdon and Liverpool Street uh, Elizabeth Line stations, and they are the most amazing uh, railway stations I've ever been in. Uh, They will transform the passenger experience, um, both from a connectivity perspective, from an ambience perspective, space and light, etc. So uh, equally, you know, the Elizabeth Line has been built in a way that it it will operate in effect as a tube metro service, high frequency, high capacity railway. So I think for sure it will be the blueprint for the future. Um, Clearly, uh, construction projects like this are complex and costly, but the benefits they deliver will be very, very significant. And I have no doubt that once the Elizabeth Line is fully up and running, that the customers will absolutely flock to it. So just looking away from current projects for a moment and looking more into the long term, 
Um, what will the, the funding constraints mean for proposed projects such as the Bakerloo line extension, which has obviously been kicked around for a couple of years now? So, um, obviously, discussions continue with the government. Our priority is around funding of the, the works and programmes that we've got uh, approved or close to approval. We continue to talk to government around uh, the future of the Bakerloo line extension. We clearly don't have the funds within TfL to carry on with that uh, in its current form. So our focus will be how do we ensure we can safeguard the route and safeguard the sites uh, for it going forward. And, and hopefully you know, we'll be able to work with government to come up with a solution that will enable us to continue with the, uh, the planning and then hopefully the construction of the Bakerloo line extension. Um, but I suspect it will be uh, one of the programmes that will be slightly further down the, down the road in terms of discussions. And looking even further into the future, how important is it to get Crossrail 2 into motion? Well, I think yeah, there's been a huge amount of work done over the last few years around Crossrail 2. And again, you know, safeguarding the route and uh, continuing to work with government around um, what Crossrail 2 uh, could deliver for uh, London. You know, will deliver the biggest uh, railway capacity upgrade for central London that, that has been created um, if it were to be approved and go ahead. So from our perspective, it's critical that we do get uh, the approval at some point in the uh, longer term for Crossrail 2. Our priority at the minute is to uh, make sure that we get gate, say get the fund, uh, sorry, the safeguarding uh, approved for the route, and we work with all the stakeholders around uh, the benefits and the business case for Crossrail 2. So we're very supportive of Crossrail 2, obviously, but at the moment it's, it's clearly not going to be as high a priority as it was uh, pre-pandemic for the obvious financial reasons that we, we have. One thing we've written about in the past is, is alternative funding streams and such as landowner levies for projects like the Bakerloo line extension and, and possibly Crossrail 2 as well. Um, how seriously is that being explored within TfL as a means of funding future projects and not having to rely on the government um, to provide cash? So I think you know, we're, we're very open to, to all forms of um, financing uh, if it makes sense to do so. Uh, we already have a number of successful uh, partnerships with um, uh, commercial organizations uh, development companies uh, London boroughs that have uh, we've partnered and and done uh, joint funding on a number of station developments for example uh, we have one ongoing at Paddington as we speak um, we've uh, done one in Waterloo with the new Waterloo station entrance which was with Canary Wharf group for example so there's many examples where we do work with both commercial organisations and London boroughs to um, benefit the wider community in that area. So we're definitely open to looking uh, at new ways of funding and financing. We're not 100% reliant or focused just on the government funding, but we need to recognise that you know the tube alone has uh, lost 90% of its income uh, and 73% of our income comes from fares revenue. Um, so we need to have the support of government to uh, enable us to carry on operating going forward in a sustainable way. So as well as funding, the other major issue facing TfL and the whole transport sector really is sustainability. We've heard about plans to power the, the entire tube network with renewable energy. How important is it to provide an environmentally sustainable service and how difficult will it be to power the entire network with, by green energy? So... Uh, yeah, the whole environmental strategy that the mayor has for the city of London is is a key part of our agenda going forward. Um, we're working hard to ha- to get to zero carbon uh, railway. Um, we're working hard with our energy providers on how we ensure that the power we receive from the grid is uh, from sustainable uh, resources. 
and we're making real progress on that. Um, we also are investing in our own technology to reduce our electricity demand. So, for example, our new Piccadilly line trains that will come into service uh, in about four years' time will have 20% regenerative braking, which will put that uh, heat back into the, uh, the train to reduce the power output. Uh, we'll also have new magnetic AC traction motors, which are far less uh, power intense. Um, so it's a combination of where we source our power from, but also how do we reduce our power demands uh, and make sure that we tackle it from both ends of the spectrum. It sounds like your mechanical engineering background is coming to the fore there. Hopefully. I'm not sure my uh, my teams are into the detail quite appreciate it yet. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today, Andy. You certainly joined London Underground at a really interesting time and you seem to be getting to grips with the challenge ahead. Please do come back and join us again sometime on the Engineers Collective to update us on the, some of the progress on your major projects too. Thank you. I'd love to. Love to. And thank you very much for the opportunity. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Bentley invites you to gauge your organization's progress by taking one of our going digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going hyphen digital hyphen rail.